I am very excited to introduce our first speaker, Dr. Patrick Lappert, who is a physician and a permanent deacon in the Diocese of Birmingham, Alabama. He's been married for 36 years, 34 years with six grown children. He was raised in a Jewish home, but lived most of his life as an atheist. He entered the Catholic Church in 1995. Deacon was first a general surgeon, then a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. He is a veteran of our United States Navy, serving 24 years, retiring with the rank of captain. He established a craniofacial reconstructive surgery unit, as well as wound care center for the largest medical treatment facility in the world. Dr. Lappert also served for three years with our United States Marine Corps flying the F-4 Phantom. I know. He serves as a deacon at Annunciation of the Lord Parish in Decatur, Alabama, and as chaplain for Courage in the Diocese of Birmingham. How about those credentials? Will you please give a warm Denver welcome, Dr. Patrick Lappert. I'm told this microphone is hot. So, so this microphone is hot now. I don't need to use the, this one here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. It's always uh, staggering how um, that whole curriculum vitae only gets a real rise when you talk about flying in the F-4 Phantom. It's like every, <laughs> everybody knows the Phantom. I don't know why that is. Well, thanks for the kind invitation to come out to Denver again um, to talk uh, about this subject of transgender. At first blush, it's kind of hard to understand how it fits into the, uh, the gospel of life, uh, at particularly the, the wonderful document, Humanae Vitae, uh, but you'll see that, uh, that there, is a, there is a place there uh, that, that we'll come to understand. And the title of the talk includes Catholic anthropology, but I, I would warn you that the talk is not certainly an exhaustive presentation on Catholic anthropology, but I, I have to give enough Catholic anthropology so we can understand the morality of transgender surgery and, and the failure of understanding that underlies this, what passes for medical care. So um, we all prayed up, everyone went to mass already. How about if we just say Hail Mary and, and, and then I'll begin. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The, uh, in the opening paragraphs of Humanae Vitae, we have this, um, what I would I'd direct your attention to is the passage there that speaks about the spirit of domination, uh, particularly the domination not only of our nature in general, but our, our, our bodies now in particular. And, uh, and, and this is one of the things we have to understand in order to get a, a, a right ap appreciation for what transgenderism is proposing to us, that it's really a form of, of domination of our, of our nature uh, rather than an appreciation and a living in our nature. And forgive me if I'm craning my neck a lot to look at my own slides, but, uh, but I must. So the reason this, this, uh, this talk is, uh, is important, particularly for people like seminarians and uh, women religious and 
uh, parish uh, staff is that we are called upon, most of the people who come to a conference like this on a Saturday morning are likely recognized in their own communities as being Catholic, amen? And so, so when, when people are wondering what the Catholic Church proposes or why the Catholic Church resists ideas like this, you have to be able to give an explanation for it. And the problem with transgender is that it's a, it's a troubling, very troubling subject, full of a confusion of language. And there's always this temptation to speak unkind words, you know, because it gets so confusing, you get frustrated and you go, oh, it's just, a, it's a horrible mess. But what we have to know is the, la we have to know the language of it so well and the problems so well that we can witness in patient love and not be flustered by the latest alarming thing coming out of the world of medicine or psychology or endocrinology that proposes itself to be medical care. So we, we must be patient. We can't be shocked or surprised. So. Uh, we know the human person to, to be a, sing, a single nature, right? That's, that, that's the basic Catholic anthropology I'm proposing to you, that, that humanity is, is a single nature. We're spiritual and, and, and incarnate, but we're, we're one nature. We don't have a spiritual nature and a, and a, and a physical nature. We are one nature, right? And, in, and by our nature, we are made for the other. We're not, we're not made for life alone. Our, our very bodies tell the story of the fact that we're made for the other and that we are possessed of an intellect and a will by which we can know the good, the true, and the beautiful and likewise possessed of, of the will to choose the good, the true, and the beautiful. So, that, so this conversation has to be about the moral life because we're talking about some, some very fundamental uh, aspects of human living and proposing some radical changes to how we live. So those, those are intrinsically moral decisions. So the moral life is built upon foundational truths. It's not, it's not an arbitrary cultural thing like driving on the right side of the road and not wearing white before Easter, right? It's not a repressive process, but an affirmation of human dignity, the intrinsic dignity of the human person. That's what the moral life is about. So, we, we have to remind ourselves of this because the Catholic position is oftentimes presented as some closed-minded restriction on human life when it's actually an affirmation of uh, the dignity of human life. So we have to remind each other. So what is a human being? So this is a, 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 an intellectual problem I proposed to my high school students is I just take them through this exercise of, you know, what is a human being? If you were a visitor from a foreign planet and you came and you sampled life on earth and you sampled trees and you sampled fish and you sampled all the rest of it and you came upon these featherless bipeds wandering around and you selected one of them and took them off into your spaceship, you could, you could make some very important descriptions about what it means to be a human being. You know, that they ambulate around, that they have two eyes in the front of their head, they have binocular vision, they seem to like vegetables as well as meat, you know, all kinds of things you can say about the human person, that they're possessed of lungs by which they can transport oxygen and circulatory system and so on. But eventually you come to these reproductive things. And if you've only sampled one human person, you can't possibly describe the fullness of what it means to be a human person uh, because you have these structures that have no explanation apart from the, but the reality that there, there's this complementary nature of male and female. So that if you, if you ever hope to, to describe the fullness of what it means to be a human person, you can't just look at one person in isolation. You have to have this binary, complementary thing. And so the way I, I, I engage the high school students is I ask for a show of hands, you know, who in this room has a reproductive system? And, you know, of course, they're all like 
scientists and the brace well, of course I have a reproductive system, but clearly no one in this room has a reproductive system. Everybody in this room has reproductive parts, right? Yeah, so the human reproductive system is incomprehensible apart from this fact, this inescapable fact that male and female we are. And without appreciating that fact, you cannot grasp the, 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 the nature of the human person. So that dimorphism and that complementarity is at the heart of the human person. And the, that really, if you, were, if you were going to try to understand what humanity is, you, what you really need to sample is a human family. That's really what our nature is. Our na human nature is this more than an isolated specimen floating around in a spaceship, right? And so when we speak about being made in the image and likeness of God, that's, that's at, at the heart of what we're saying. We're saying that we are, we are in our nature a community of persons as God is. God is one but not alone. God is one but a community of persons, a community of love, a community of love that gives rise to life. So that's the totality of Catholic anthropology I'm going to give you this morning. But why do we have to get into the nature of the human person? Well, because we're going to be talking about medical care and pastoral care. And medical care, if it's worth anything at all, addresses itself to the nature of the human person because if it doesn't, it's doing all kinds of random and stupid and deleterious things. So the better you understand human nature, the better physician surgeon you're going to be. Why? Because we act on nature to perfect it. That's what doctors are supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be perfecting human nature, whether it be mending a broken bone or reconstructing a missing part or managing uh, you know, blood pressure, whatever it may be. We begin with an understanding of the right functioning of things and we aim ourselves at that. And that's also the life of grace. The life of grace aims itself at human nature because that's what grace accomplishes. Grace does not change our nature. Grace perfects our nature. So if you have radical misunderstandings about what human nature is, you're going to probably make a lot of radical errors about everything from medical care to the life of grace. So, so uh, I, I overlooked that the, the, the perfection, the perfectly realized in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this is, a, this is not to be skipped over because it is my opinion that at the heart of this transgender error is actually... Uh, a weapon aimed at our understanding of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That's actually an attack on the incarnation. Because if you, don't under, if you think of human person as being a spirit creature that may or may not be occupying the right flesh, then what Christ did on the cross is, becomes an illusion rather than the most important historic reality that humanity has ever experienced. Amen? Yeah. Okay. So. The problem is that the language of gender that we're, that, that we're given in this public conversation is this gamish of language from biology, psychiatry, psychology, and, uh, and sociology. It's, it's, it's a gigantic political mess as well. And the problem when you're having this conversation with people is that the, the language is constantly shifting from terminology from biology to terminology from politics, terminology from psychiatry. And whenever you're gaining ground in the conversation, it'll suddenly shift. One minute you're talking about biological determinism and it's genetically determined, and as you drill down into the genetics of the whole problem, they'll stop you and say, yeah, well, that biological determinism is like restrictive and, and really my freedom is what's at stake here. And suddenly you're having a political conversation. So you have to know the way the language jump shifts around so that you can anticipate it and not get flustered and annoyed and throw your hands up and leave the room, right? 
Yeah, so that's one of the things I hope to give you today. Um, we have to understand the way the world views science as well. And when I say science, I say science divorced from the life of faith, which means less than the fullness of science, right? The fullness of science must include faith because it addresses itself to the same truth. And if you, from the beginning, eliminate revealed truth, then you've lost a major, major uh, perspective on the world in which we live, and therefore your science starts to fail. Nonetheless, the world views science as this pure thing, that, that, that they have this confidence that science is always delivering the truth in its purest forms, and that, and that science is giving us a more evolved understanding of the world in which we live. And I use the term evolved advisedly because they like to throw that in there to give you the impression that their understanding of the problem is here, and you are down here somewhere. You haven't evolved, and therefore you're in darkness, right? Yeah, and so um, they also have this confidence in technology. There's this abiding confidence in technology, particularly medical technology, that it'll have the capability of satisfying any choice that a person might make. And, and so this is what takes us to that issue of the domination of the human person, right? The domination now, not just of his reproductive faculty, not just of the world in which, but the actual domination of his own body and seeing the body as a possession rather than that one nature, right? Spirit and flesh, one nature. They separate the two and say, you can do whatever you want with your body as if you own it. That the body is, a, is, is something that one exercises ownership and dominion over. Whether you're piercing it, tattooing it, or modifying it, the genitals or whatever, it's seen as something to, to, to uh, satisfy your will upon it. And the term progress is thrown in there quite liberally because it's seen as this irresistible power of history. That's how the Marxists view the world and that's the reason why they like to throw in the word progress because progress is defined materially and that there's this inexorable characteristic of history that you must get out of the way of that's leading to this perfect fulfillment where people are no longer oppressed. Right? Okay. So, the, the language of transgender is really an, an outgrowth of the language of gender identity. And, it, and at, at its heart is this divorcing of the two aspects of human sexuality and the human sexual union. The unitive aspect and the procreative aspect. That's what underlies all of this. When you begin with that inter interior divorce of, the, of human sexuality, um, it ultimately leads to these errors. So. So what we have here is this counterpoise between Catholic anthropology and materialist anthropology. The anthropology that's taught in public education today. The anthropology that's taught at the university. The anthropology that's sadly taught in many Catholic schools. Historic Catholic schools give you this at its, at its heart, particularly if you're, in your, in your, if you're in the sciences. So what is it? I like to simplify that. Again, this is a, this is a less than one hour talk, so I can't be exhaustive about this, but my simplification of it is the three-stranded rope. And I call it the three-stranded rope because this is the rope that has been fashioned into a noose upon which today hangs Western civilization, right? Yeah, and what is the principle? The three strands are that man is materially caused, that we are at the end of, uh, the present end of a long series of accidental events, beginning with the, you know, the first moments of the universe and through a series of random events have produced us, Right? Man is materially caused. The second error is that man is materially motivated, that you can distill down all of man's actions to 
physical, biological, chemical, genetic processes and come to some understanding of who the human person is, materially caused, materially driven, and that his highest aim and his highest good can be materially defined, right? The economic, materialist, Marxist idea of human happiness, whether that idea of human happiness is the amount of money you have or the amount of sex that you're having or the diversity of sex that you're experiencing or whatever it is, it's a material explanation for, we, for your greatest good. So materially caused, materially driven, and his highest happiness can be materially defined. That's contemporary education, right? The psychological language seeks to give us a complete explanation of human behavior without any recourse to theology and sees man merely as a particularly complicated animal. And so we have the wealth of you know, contemporary teaching of behavioral psychology and so on that looks to the animal world to explain what human beings are doing, right? But that we have these inherent drives that are common to all animal life. And, and in with that, we have these assorted coping mechanisms to deal with the frustration of those drives. And some of those coping mechanisms are pathological and some of them are not. And when, the, when, when our drives are frustrated, we develop these problems. And this is what the world of psychology, psychiatry has given us. That, that, that the search for pleasure is how we develop our character. And if you thwart that search for pleasure, you develop abnormal character. I, I don't want to be totally reductionistic about this, but I'm trying to simplify things. So the search for pleasure is the central element of all of this, right? And that the sexual pleasure is seen as the highest of all. Right? And it's all, not only seen as the highest of all, but it's seen as the central element in character development. So, you know, frustrating your desire to get something to eat is interesting, but when you frustrate the, the psychosexual development of a person, frustrate their sexual desires and, and, and expressions, this is seen as the ultimate form of repressive things. You see, you see how, how quickly I lapsed into political speech? We were talking about the biology of behavior, and I'm already speaking politically, because what we're talking about here is character development seen from this materialist point of view. Good pleasurable experiences mean good personality development. Bad sexual pleasure experiences lead to bad character development. Very mechanistic, right? In all of this, human sexuality is viewed from the standpoint of the one person, their needs, and the satisfaction of those needs. See how fundamentally we've separated ourselves from the Catholic understanding already? We haven't even gotten down into the weeds yet, and already we're viewing the, the human person and the most essential aspects of his development and growth from the standpoint of an isolated, solitary being over here and how their desires uh, are going to be satisfied. Any moral perspective on that human sexual development is seen as an arbitrary social restriction or taboo, and that these taboos have no foundational truth, right? They're arbitrary cultural things, right? And there's this belief that much of psychopathology can be avoided by just changing society and ignoring the moral questions altogether. And so here we are. We're rapidly changing society in, in my lifetime. The, the, the things that were taken for granted have been utterly thrown overboard now. Because, why? Because we're trying, to, we're, we're trying to make all of this better for people. The reason people are unhappy is because you're frustrating their development and you're frustrating the development with these arbitrary social taboos we're gonna just get rid of all that stuff. And now we're down to the level of what pronouns you're gonna use in, in, in public speech, right? Okay, here's how I summarize all of that. This is the take home slide. In this worldview, adult sexuality is seen as this endlessly variable personal expression 
of individuality, the purpose of which is to produce joy for that person. It sometimes involves other people and with alarming frequency is known to produce other people. Okay? That's, the, that's kind of the synopsis of how human sexuality is viewed. And see, from, from, from top to bottom, it's the, the person seen in isolation and, and how their happiness is being met. And, and other people coming into that is strictly you know, conditional and coincidental, right? And so it's a using of other persons and a using of even their own self to achieve this joy. And then there are all these other confounding things like, oh yeah, if you're not careful, these other creatures will appear and they're these sort of small things that we call babies, right? But that's seen as something to be avoided now. Fertility, pregnancy is an impediment. It's one of those impediments that limit your joy and therefore it has to be dealt with. And so Im immediately we've utterly perverted our understanding of the human person and that, that image of the family as being the essence of what it means to be a human being, we fragmented it into, and, and now people are using each other and disposing of one another because how can you have good character development if you've got all these impediments like babies, right? Okay, the corollary to that is that adult sexuality is seen as the developmental result of childhood sexuality in just the same way as adult language is seen as the developmental result of childhood language. And for this reason, it's become the habit of psychologists and teachers to talk to children about adult sexuality. People consider it a work of charity now, to, to comp in a completely uninvited, that they're gonna talk to your children about sexuality. Why, because they, they view it as in the same light as, as language development or anything else like that. And, uh, and it's, it's, I mean, it's going on all the time. They're publishing books for, for children to not only walk them through uh, the, the sex life that they hope to experience, but even the transgender sense of themselves. And these are being distributed for free to public school libraries. So your child can go rummaging around in that library and find books like this that will help them explore what their adult sex life is gonna be like. And maybe they can think, start thinking now in third grade about who they're more attracted to. Or maybe you don't even think of yourself as a boy. Things like that. Okay. It's also happening clearly in the media. And not only are we given presentations like this, but the presentations include children speaking with rehearsed language. No nine-year-old speaks of themselves this way. It, it is not in our nature to divide ourselves like this. And certainly a nine-year-old child uh, would never speak of themselves as being stuck in the wrong body. So this is rehearsed speech. And we'll see more, more about this later on. But, uh, and here's an example of an adult talking to a child about adult sexuality on television. And I include this screen grab to point out several things. First of all, the conversation is being groomed by the media like this. And what you have is a show that's all about an adult talking to, in this particular episode, an 11-year-old child about their sexual future. Because where this life is going right now with the help of this TV program is this 11-year-old child at some point is going to have their genitals mutilated and rearranged so that they can have receptive intercourse with an adult man. And there's no other way to describe where this child is headed, right? She's not talking to this child about your future as a, as a, as a husband father. It's talking about your, because that's not going to happen. What's going to happen is this child is going to have 
their genitals rearranged so that they can have receptive intercourse with an adult man somewhere. That's all sub rasa. What they're talking about right now is how fun it is to date. But this is what's going on here. That's, that's, and and we're, we're living in a world that considers this a totally normal program, programming for television. I, wanna, I included in this picture the, that tile in the upper right-hand corner, that on this, this website that supports this TV show, you have advertising for people who might want to expand upon their degree in psychology to go into media psychology and produce programs just like this. And then the other thing on this tile is that tile on the left that says, I want to kill myself, that includes this plea for mercy. And whenever the transgender issue is presented, they always slip in this plea for mercy, that you have to act the way they're telling you to act, because if you don't, this child has a 40% likelihood of taking their own life. the right button. So I'm going to just stop there for a minute and just give you a, a really quick overview of my life as a plastic surgeon, right, so that we can understand the next part of this talk. Plastic surgery is about when things don't feel right because they don't look right, okay? Now, sometimes they don't, they don't feel right and don't look right because of something congenital, something accidental, something therapeutic, something's wrong, it doesn't look right, maybe it doesn't work right, and as a result of that, the, the person doesn't feel right, and so they come to the plastic surgeon for help. And I'll give you some examples of that. And, and there's a, a bright dividing line kind of in plastic surgery between aesthetics and reconstructive, but there really isn't a, a strong dividing line between those two. Because when I do reconstructive surgery, say on a congenital deformity of the face, there's a lot of aesthetics that's in that. And there's a lot of functional stuff as well. Uh, so, but there's a, a, a population of patients who come to plastic surgeons because they have a profound interior sorrow. They have this terrible anxiety, sometimes anger, and they're looking for a material explanation for why they feel so bad. And it's natural to man to do that because we are aesthetic people. What we see affects how we feel, right? The good, the true, and the beautiful. The beautiful is an important part of what it means to be a human person because of what it calls up in us. It calls up in us a sense of the eternal and the divine. And sometimes we see things that sort of rob us of that sense of things. And sometimes we see it in ourselves. And so it's natural for us when we, we don't feel right to look for a material explanation for that, right? And so people looking in a mirror to try to understand why they feel so terrible sometimes will latch on some physical aspect of their appearance and go, this is why my life is such a wreck. And they'll come to a plastic surgeon. Now, I see people all day long who come in and they'll complain of something that bothers them, like, you know, prominent ears in a 12-year-old in a, in a boy. This is, this is within the realm of normal for a child possibly to have ears that are quite prominent, but this kid's suffering with it. And, and if I can fix that with no, no real trouble at all and no risk to the patient, I'm going to do that because within a week, his life's going to change and he's going to spend his day thinking about something besides the prominence of his ears. If I was putting his life at risk to do that, I'd say, suck it up, man. You've got to live with this. There's more important things to think about. But if I can fix it without too much trouble, I'm going to do that for him, right? Um, but there are people who come to the plastic surgeon who come with this profound sorrow, something that's really bothering them, and they'll say, it's, it's my nose. And, and while you're having this conversation and you're looking at their nose, you're going, that nose is totally within the range of normal. 
It's a, a fifth the width of their face. It's a third the height of their face. It, it, it's congruent with their masculinity, their femininity. But they're in tears talking about how their life is a mess because of the appearance of their nose. Okay? That's what we call body dysmorphic disorder. And we plastic surgeons spend a lot of time reflecting on this because you want to you direct those people to the right care. You don't want to operate on these people because you'll just create more heartache. Right? But it's a broad category of disorders where you have a misperception about their physical appearance. And the most obvious example is anorexia. Right? Everybody knows that an anorexic thinks of themselves as obese. They're, they have this profound interior sorrow and, a, and sometimes a profound anxiety about safety. And they, and they think it's because they're fat. And if only they weren't fat, they wouldn't have this anxiety. So they, they start this whole life of purging and, and all the things that they do. Uh, and it's, it is based upon this misunderstanding of who they really are and what the cause of their sorrow really is. Uh, the aesthetic patient that I just described to you, who, who hangs all of their sorrows upon the appearance of their nose or something like that, there are even people who present seeking limb amputations because they think of themselves as, as uh, disabled people or they don't recognize their own leg as being their own. They think that, that they, they would be safer they don't explain it this way, but they have this anxiety about safety, and, they, and they, they think of themselves as disabled because if they were in a wheelchair, their life would be easier and less risky for them. So they'll actually present for limb amputations. And what's really remarkable about this slide is that people are actually having a conversation about the morality of cutting off a perfectly good leg. Right? Are you serious? Yes. In fact, one of the leaders of the British Medical Service public health service in Great Britain lost his license because he was running a clinic cutting off the limbs, the, the perfectly healthy limbs of people with body identity disorders like this. Okay, so that's called body dysmorphic disorder. We've known about this for a long, long time. It's part of training as a plastic surgeon to know what this is. And it's a subcategory of obsessive compulsive disorder, right? And that leads to a, a depression and a social isolation. Right? The body dysmorphic disorder is, is well understood as generally obsessive compulsive disorders are understood and the treatment of it is very similar. If somebody comes to you, if somebody comes to my office and they're in tears because their life is a ruin because their nose has a little hump on it, right? I'm not going to take them and do a rhinoplasty. I'm going to refer them to somebody who's going to help them to understand the realities of life to, to, to get at what is causing their sorrow. Right? The problem is that they have this obsessive thought and the, it's an interior voice that keeps giving them this obsessive thought and it's so loud inside their minds that they can't think about anything else. So we give them serotonin reuptake inhibitors, that's what SSRIs are, it's a, it's a kind of antidepressant. We give them SSRIs because it turns down the volume on that voice so that they can be reached with cognitive behavioral therapy so that they can have a right understanding of what's big in their life and what's little in their life and what's important and how to proceed, right, and how to live a congruent life, right? And that form of therapy is the established treatment for obsessive compulsive disorder. It's, it may change. In five years from now, I might be saying, no, the way we treat that is X, Y, and Z. Right now, that's the standard of care. All right. So gender dysphoria is a subcategory of body dysmorphic disorder. But in this case, the, the, the material of it is not the nose, but the overall uh, gender presentation 
I don't look the way I know I should, and this is why I'm unhappy. The world doesn't accept me as I know I really am. I know I'm really a disabled person. In this case, I know I'm really a man instead of a woman, a woman instead of a man, right? That, that likewise, it leads to a social isolation and, and can lead to incongruous, even misspelled incongruous behavior, and then uh, a secret life with associated shame, right? What's happening there is that, that there's this obsessive thinking relating to their sex, right, with various degrees of unhappiness. And the word dysphoria has been introduced now because people have been trying to get away from the idea of transgender as being an actual diagnosis, a pathological condition. What they're wanting us to believe is that the pathological condition isn't the transgender ideation, but just the unhappiness that results because you don't treat them the way they ought to be treated. Does that make sense? So the, the, the fault is not with them, the fault is with you, right? But they have to have a word in this case, the word is dysphoria, because if you don't have a word like that, you can't collect money from third-party payers. That's why. They want to get the money to do the surgery, but they don't like the idea of having a diagnosis that implies pathology. So you've got to have a word. So the word is what we're going to talk about now is their unhappiness. They're okay, but they're unhappy, and they would be happy if you just changed them and also changed the way you talk to them. Okay? Okay. At the heart of it, as with all obsessive-compulsive disorders, is a delusional thought. Delusional thinking is at the heart. Every obsessive-compulsive disorder has a delusion. And in the case, for example, of the anorexic, they have a delusion that they're obese. In this case, the delusion has to do with the sex of the person, right? This is not new stuff. The diagnostic criteria for delusional thinking has been around for at least the last 105 years. Right? It's an idea that's held with certainty, with absolute conviction. It's incorrigible. You can't change it with compelling counterarguments or proof to the contrary, and it's impossible. So a, a, an anorexic person coming to me as a plastic surgeon and saying, I want to have liposuction, right? I would obviously stop them right there and, and, and say, well, this is not true, right? It is, but it's held with certainty. So if I do a body mass index on them and say, look, your BMI is less than 5%, you're not an obese person, they will listen to me and nod and go, yeah, but can you, do you think you could liposuction this part right over here, right? Seriously, so that, that's the incorrigibility of it. They can't hear you telling them the truth or they, they, they recognize it as true but not for them. And it's impossible. It's impossible for a person with a BMI of 5% to be obese. That's a fact, right? That's a fact. But that's what we're having an argument about because now we're being told that it's possible that a person with a Y chromosome is in fact a woman. That's what the argument's about. That's what it's about. So, so, but this is the criteria for an obsessive compulsive disorder is that there's a delusional thought that underlies it. And that's the thought that's yelling in their brain saying, you are a woman, you are a woman, or you are obese, or you're obese, or you know, things like that. Okay. So, uh, we have to understand that persons who are transgender, that they have a variety of what we call comorbidities that calls to us for sensitivity. You have to look in, the, in, in their life for, for risks of these other problems of, of alcohol and drug abuse and a very high suicide rate, and that is a fact. Persons who are transgender in their thinking have a greater than 40% likelihood of self-harm to the point of suicide. Okay. It has variable expression. Transgender persons can, might be just cross-dressing in private, and that's all they need to do to manage their anxiety. 
that if at the end of the day they just sort of go off by themselves and, and sort of cross-dress and act out in private, that that's enough to manage the anxiety of the day and get them through another day. And there are many as the person who's discovered very late in life, very successful people discovered late in life, that they were privately cross-dressing, right? Yeah, but it can also express itself in, 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 in more obvious ways, that, that it, they may come to the point where, well, they were cross-dressing when they were bo little boys, but that wasn't enough to manage the anxiety, so now they start acting out more in publicly. And then they run into a re rebuke for doing that, and so they become secretive, and shame becomes associated with it, but they still have the anxiety. So then they decide they're gonna cross-dress and present as the cross-sex person publicly in the hopes that that will prove to the world that they are, in fact, the other sex, and they'll do it anonymously at first, and that's when they start getting into trouble, presenting themselves as the other sex trying to convince a person like a, you know, going to another man and saying, presenting themselves as a woman to try to get that affirmation and then they'll run into problems and that's when they start getting physically abused and that's when they start getting into the abuse of drugs and alcohol. And the person most likely to injure a transgender person is someone that they thought was their partner, someone that they thought was their friend right? Not anonymously. They're not as likely to get abused anonymously. They're more likely to get abused by somebody who knows them and has been playing along. Okay. They'll transition in stages. So people can get off this merry-go-round at any point. They can get off at the point of private cross-dressing or they may go all the way through to changing name, driver's licenses, hairstyle, and then on to surgery. But they can get off at any point. And sometimes they, they get to uh, financial problems because they've lost their job, because of their incongruous behavior, and so they'll start doing illegal things to get the money. And, uh, and, and very often they'll fall into, into problems with prostitution and the, the selling of drugs and things like that. So you have to be aware of that possibility. Okay, so the biological language of transgender is trying to establish a biological basis for transgender. And that's a reasonable thing because the, 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 the nature of the human person just screams that there's an actual biological basis for male and female. Obvious fact. These days we have to repeat it, right? And so what is being sought out in the world of biology now is a, is a similar explanation. Well, if you can have male and you can have female, why can't we have something in between? And so there's this, this effort to look for a biological explanation for that, right? Uh, and words like evolution are, are being applied to that whole process, that there's some evolutionary basis for it. We're looking for an adaptive advantage for something that's essentially fruitless, right? What would be the adaptive advantage of somebody who is acting sexually in a way that's not congruent with their sexual identity? Because it's, it's a fruitless thing, right? So it's hard to explain genetically, right? hard to reconcile the Darwinian view of the human person with this inherited behavior that's annoyingly maladaptive. Nonetheless, there's this hope that if you find a genetic trait in the animal world, that would silence the moral arguments, right? That's one of the reasons why there's this, this strong emphasis. And you'll even hear people like, like Father John, uh, James Martin talking about, well, you know, there's biology, biological evidence. About, but, no, no, no. That's introduced because it's, it's hope that it will excuse us from having a moral conversation. Because if it's in our nature, then, then clearly to inhibit that would be a, a crime, right? Yeah, so the hope of silencing moral arguments if you get, have strong enough genetic explanation. 
The problem with that, of course, is that biological determinism does not excuse us from the moral life. Bears eat their young. Okay, the fact that you see it in the animal world doesn't, doesn't excuse the human person from moral decision-making, right? So whether or not somebody's born that way is immaterial. It doesn't matter to me whether you're born with tuberculosis or you acquire it. Tuberculosis is still not healthy. It doesn't matter to me if you're born with, if it was transgender or not, it's not good for you that that exists. Does that mean I, I reject you? No, I'm a physician. If you've got a problem, I'm gonna help you, right? But we're not gonna begin by missing the diagnosis and calling evil good and good evil. Seems obvious. But I find myself having to make this declaration publicly a lot lately because we've forgotten that, all right? Okay, so the biological language. Isn't there a genetic explanation for transgender, right? We learn in school that there are many genetically caused examples of people who are somewhere between man and woman, right? You'll learn this in biology in fifth grade, sixth grade, so on, right? Kleinfelter syndrome. And so it'll be proposed that, well, that's what I am. That's what I have. I'm, I look like a man, but I'm really a woman. I'm somewhere in between. I'm transgender. I'm like Kleinfelter, right? Kleinfelter is a syndrome that has diagnostic criteria, right? At the heart of all of that is I can do a buckle swab. I can carry a type of the genetics of the person. I can count the chromosomes, and I go, oh, look, there's the XXY here. Right? There's, a, there's objective criteria for an actual condition. And what we have here is a man, a man, because he's got a Y chromosome, but he has an impediment, right? He has an impediment to fullness of life as a man, and that impediment is this, uh, this, this extra X chromosome. As surely as a child with trisomy 21 is a child of God, who has an impediment that has to do with the same non-disjunction, in this case, not of the sex chromosome, but the 21st chromosome. It's the same process, non-disjunctional chromosomal abnormality, but the person has a Y chromosome and is, you know, res ipsa loquitur. He's a man, right? Um, so there are multidisciplinary clinics that serve persons who have intersex conditions. Intersex conditions are objective difficulties that the, that the medical world seeks to help people with. And these intersex clinics are primarily for newborn or pediatric patients who have ambiguities of their genitalia. Sometimes they're syndromic, sometimes uh, the developmental issues that happen in utero, the, the migration and movement of tissues, the formation of organs and things like that. And so there are specialty clinics that are aimed at giving them the fullness of life that always begin with an understanding of what the human person is what they're called to, what the fullness of human functioning is, and how we're gonna help this child get the most of that we possibly can, right? That's where the term gender assignment came from. When you hear the word gender assignment, now it's used as a political term, but it began in an intersex clinic. When you have a child with ambiguities and you're scratching your head going, well, what is this more like male or is this more like female? And so the term assignment was used to help direct the whole team at where we're going here. Well, where we're going here is we're going to modify the evident genitalia in such a way as to get the best possible outcome of a female here. Make sense? It's not about taking a child who's otherwise normal and going, we're going to assign male here, right? No, it's not that at all. But that's where the term came from, right? Seeking to establish an arrangement of tissues that would make intercourse possible, 
most of the time it's just trying to make simple things possible, like voiding without contaminating their urinary system with feces and things like that, giving the, the capacity for self-hygiene and self-regulation, continence and things like that, right? But sometimes there's simple issues where you just do a little, a little modification and you have essentially totally normal human functioning, right? Okay, so is, is transgender like that? Is it an intersex condition like Klinefelter's or androgen insensitivity? Short answer, no. No, there's nothing in the transgender person that has any biological marker, genetic or otherwise. There's no evidence that it's a biologically determined thing yet. Yet. Is it hormonal? Is it caused by hormonal, uh, uh, the, the hormonal environment in utero, the hormonal environment of the child as they're growing up? No. If you look at trans, transgender persons and no, the normal population and you match people for age and sex, at any given time, transgender persons have the same hormonal life as, as anybody else, right? Is it anatomical? Can we do brain scans on transgender persons? Can we do MRIs, uh, dynamic MRIs, CT scans, and find, oh, here we are. We have a brain that's somewhere between male and female. It's called an intersex brain, right? It is a reality. You can look at, at scans and go, oh, this is obviously a female brain, or this is obviously a male brain. But you can't look at, an, at a transgender person and go, oh, this is obviously a transgender. No, you'll look at it and you go, that's a man, that's a woman, right? Yeah. There's some interesting things in that world that I don't have time to talk about, uh, about dynamic studies of people who are uh, uh, same-sex attracted, transgender, and things like that, that are experiential, that has to do with neuroplasticity. You know, if I, if I, if I take scotch whiskey and wave it under the nose of a 14-year-old boy, I'll, I'm gonna get a PET scan that's gonna go revulsion. Here's the revulsion experience. But if I wave that same scotch underneath the brain of somebody who's maybe 64 years old and used to fly with the Marine Corps, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fly and go, oh, look, happiness, right? It's going to look happiness. And, and then you might jump to some conclusion and say, oh, this person's obviously genetically an alcoholic. No, I just had life experiences that are reflected in the way my brain responds to stimuli. And so there's, there's, it's a real minefield if you're going to go in there and go, oh, look, this is a same-sex attracted brain. No. What you're really looking at there is a brain that has come to experience some satisfactions from certain kinds of experiences that are not good for them, but they still experience them as pleasurable. Do you see the difference? And that's, that's the, 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 the dangerous minefield of neuroplasticity. Um, anyway, nonetheless, all this speculation among sexologists who've been working in these intersex clinics, is gender identity malleable and fluid or is it socially determined? Is it produced by these repressive processes, right? Are you a, am I a man because my parents assigned male to me and repressed me out of the person I'm really supposed to be, which is like, you know, a theater major who likes decorating, you know, that kind of garbage man, you know. No, no, it's, it's, it's nothing, nothing like that. But these are the kind of people who kind of gave us that idea that sex is, is a socially conditioned thing, right? You don't want to know more about these people. Um, seriously, every one of them has just such a dark, dark, anyway. Uh, there's this great difficulty, though, in separating vague and as yet not demonstrated genetic influences from social and cultural influences. Remember that I just said there is at present no genetic evidence that any of this is biologically determined like that. That's not to say that there never will be, but right now there sure isn't. But it's very hard to tease these things apart 
to tease apart genetics from social conditioning. But the gold standard for doing that is a twin study. If you can get two genetically identical people, find them out there, if they've been exposed to completely different environments growing up, you might make some statements about going, well, here's one who, is, who grew up in an upper middle class family, and here's one who grew up in poverty. They're identical twins, and look, they both grew up to be, you know, left-handed artists or whatever, right? So it's genetically determined. It's, but it's really hard to convince parents to separate monozygotic twins at birth and assign female to one and male to the other. Very hard to do that, right? But it happened. It happened accidentally in Canada. A woman gave birth to monozygotic twin boys, and when she took them to the pediatrician to have them circumcised, the first boy's genitals were mutilated by a, 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 an error in using the equipment, and so the, the mother w went looking for help. And uh, sadly, she discovered that there was an intersex clinic at Johns Hopkins University and thought, well, these people deal with ambiguities of children's genitalia. I will go to that clinic and I will get help for my, my mutilated child. The problem was there was a sexologist working in that clinic by the name of John Money who convinced them that this is not a problem at all. Just raise that child as a girl, right? And, and so the, the woman, it's Johns Hopkins. This is a PhD, John Money. I'm going to... Sounds like a simple thing. He doesn't really need any other surgery right now. We'll just raise him as a girl, and then eventually he'll have some surgery to make that better, and, and, and everything will be great. And so that's what they did, right? The plan was to socialize strenuously as a girl, eventually to castrate, administer cross-sex hormones, ultimately to reconstruct or to produce a neo-vagina, and that there would be no problem, and that, and that John Money basically hit, hit pay dirt here. He's got a twin study, Right? And it's no problem separating the twins this way because the mom's going to do it for you. He started publishing papers about what a gigantic success all of this was. And those papers led to other papers. And the, the whole world of, of transgender grew up out of that one event. And he presented it paper upon paper as this successful uh, evidence in every respect. Right? He presented those twins as perfectly well-adjusted that the one child is basically a, a charming, lovely little girl because we raised them as a girl, and Brenda. And everybody chimed in and said, see, it's true. M male and female are really equivalent things, and you become one or the other by, by oppressive political things like gender assignment. But if you leave children alone, they'll, they'll become you know, whatever they want to become. And so all the sociology and the political language just blossomed, right? And the whole world of transgender and all the political ramifications came to full bloom. Dr. Money's twin study proved all this conclusively, right? The problem was that with the annual visits that come down from Canada, the, the annual visits weren't producing really the results that he was hoping for. The one child who was being raised as a girl was actually the more rambunctious and masculine of the two and wanted to play boy stuff but because of this intense socialization he was being subjected to, he didn't have any boys' clothes. He had to only wear girls' clothes, even in the winter in Canada, had to wear a dress, couldn't have any boys' toys. So he'd go out to play, he'd want to play with the boys, uh, but they wouldn't want to play with him because he shows up in a dress. And then he'd go play with the girls, but they wouldn't want to play with him because he didn't want to play Barbie, he wanted to like decapitate Barbie and set her on fire, whatever, right? What boys do at age six, you know? And so it, it, it was creating problems. So on the annual follow-up visit, Dr. Money became more uh, sort of 
absolute about the socialization, and he would even have them undress and simulate sex play together. Siblings, undressed, simulating coitus at preteen ages that he would photograph, right? That's how dark and perverse this whole world is. And it, and it became such a source of fear and anxiety to these children that they told their parents that, that they would rather die than go back and see that man, right? And so they, she, she took them to a psychologist, and the psychologist said, you've got to tell these boys the truth. So she confessed the truth to these two lads, and he was thrilled because he knew all along that there was this giant in his life that was threatening to kill him, and the giant was who he actually is. And, and so when he discovered the truth, he insisted that his name was going to be David because he felt as if he had slain the giant, and he became a boy in every sense of the word, right? The problem was he had been mutilated and he'd been castrated on top of that. And so he had to have some surgical help to be able to void as men void. And he had to have hormones so that he could, you know, live as men live. And, uh, but John Money was totally silent on this. He didn't make any public retractions on any of this stuff. And that literature is still out there and he's still cited in the, in the, in the footnotes and in the, in the citations, right? He never took a word of this back. He, uh, David, embraced masculine life. He married a widow woman, adopted her children, did everything he could to be the man he felt himself called to be. The problem was he and his brother had been so severely wounded by their life experiences that both of them suffered in many, many ways. Uh, his brother eventually took his own life with, with, with a drug overdose. Um, David's wife left him because of all of the turmoil in life. And, uh, and then David basically took his own life with a handgun alone in a parking lot. And John Money is silent until he went to the grave, never took any of that back. So that, but that is the foundation stone for transgender science, that case. All right, so here we are at the nexus of Catholic anthropology and plastic surgery. That's what transgender medicine is proposing, that we're going to do surgery on people and change them around. Plastic surgery is the oldest form of surgery. We've been around forever. And at the heart of much of what we do is restoring people who are social outcasts because of their appearance. Sometimes they've been mutilated, as in India, the ear is cut off. Seventh century BC documents about ear reconstruction. Sometimes they are the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire and they can't present themselves because somebody cut their nose off. And yeah, Julian II, or Justinian II rather. Uh, sometimes they've been the subject of a vendetta in Italy and they've had their nose cut off. But the idea is that you want to restore people to social functioning and you reconstruct them, right? Basic principles of reconstruction is the establishment or restoration of form and function. We, we do that. And it's based on our understanding of who the human person is and what they're called to be, right? What we're directing ourselves to is the perfection of their nature as a human person. That's what we want for them, right? Sometimes it's trauma, sometimes it's surgery, right? Sometimes it's missing at birth, right? A, a wonderful example is an amputated thumb, right? We'll look at the hand. Is it a helping hand? Is it a dominant hand? How are we going to get him his thumb back? In this case, we turned his index finger into his thumb. And now he has a, a good helping hand, a good prehensile hand. What was his index finger is now his thumb, but he's got grip back and he can go back to work. So a working man's helping hand 
the donor morbidity of turning his index finger into a thumb perfectly acceptable, right? Because it's a helping hand on a working man, right? Different if this was a 19-year-old female who lost her thumb because the left hand on a 19-year-old is likely the one that's presenting the ring to all her friends. So the aesthetic appearance is much more important. You gotta have all four fingers and the thumb there. So it would be a different reconstructive effort. Do you see where I'm going, right? But we aim ourselves at not only the general nature of the human person, but that particular person's needs, right? Um, sometimes it's congenital, as in the cleft. Sometimes it's multi multi-problematic, Spe speech, feeding, hearing, all kinds of things that we address ourselves to. And plastic surgery is getting pretty good at that kind of stuff, right? But it always begins with who they are, what they're called to be, what's normal and natural, and what's missing, right? But you always have to ask yourself, what are you gonna lose or compromise when you reconstruct them? We call that the donor defect. In the case of the hand, he's losing his index finger. That's, what he's, that's the price he's paying to get a thumb, right? Every, every reconstructive procedure has that donor defect and has its risk benefits, and we always have to ask ourselves how we're doing that. So we've already talked a little bit about the, 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 uh, the transgender person transitioning, right, and how they're getting themselves into difficulty when they've moved through cross-dressing, and now their secret of dysfunctional life has come to the attention of professionals. They get psychological counseling. And the problem is that the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, presumes that their gender nonconformity is the normal, and they're going to encourage them to do that. So if you send a, a person who's having confusion about their gender to the typical psychiatrist, psychologist, they're going to go, oh, yeah, no, we're going to help you to become that person you know yourself to be. They're not going to say, oh, maybe there's an interior wound I have to help you find. Maybe I have to give you some, some serotonin reuptake inhibitor so you can actually hear me speaking the truth to you. No, they're gonna say, oh yeah, you really aren't a man, you're a woman. Let's get started. The blind guides, we call them, okay? They'll start with a test of maleness and femaleness because they're looking for the congruity between their evident sex and their self-perceived sex. But get this right here. They started with the premise that there's no reality like male and female, but the first thing they do is test for that, right? And they can't predict on the basis of those tests who's going to benefit from the therapy or not, right? Cross-sex, identity development, clothing, name, persona, they'll start giving hormones, puberty blocking, all of that starts in, voice training, hair management. If you go to the typical pediatric hospital these days, they'll have a clinic, and that clinic is aimed at making that happen. This is CHOP in Philadelphia, this is St. Louis University, right? And they present this wonderful picture of how we're going to help that child help that person become the other sex as if that's even possible, right? And they'll, they'll use this language of gender dysphoria and they'll talk very casually about giving hormonal blockade and cross-sex hormones to children. What you need to understand is that puberty blocking drugs given to prepubertal children is human experimentation. There is no body of medical scientific evidence to show even the safety of giving puberty-blocking drugs to normal children. We have experience giving puberty-blocking drugs to children who are experiencing precocious puberty because that is a medical condition with objective medical criteria to make the diagnosis. And so I have to block that. Why? Because I know what a child should be looking like and living like at age nine, and growing facial hair isn't that, so I'm going to stop that. But a normal child blocking their development with puberty blockade 
is experimental work now. But all of those pediatric hospitals are doing that now. And it's human experimentation, right? With irreversible effects on fertility. We don't even know what it's doing to their psychomotor development. Nobody has any evidence of that. But here's the important take-home point. I'm sorry I'm running late, but you've got to hear this. If you took 100 children who express cross-sex ideas of themselves, 100 boys who like to play around and think of themselves as girls, 100 girls who do, who do likewise as boys, prepubertal children, if you left them alone, just let them play, let them grow up, encourage them rightly as parents ought to, 91% of them will stop doing that on their own spontaneously. If you take the same 100 children to the intersex trans, transgender clinic at a, a pediatric hospital, 100% of them will persist in the cross-sex idea. Just think about that medical evidential reality. 91% of them would have li lived a completely normal life. You're taking that 91% of them and consigning them to a life of hormonal support, mutilating surgeries, permanent sterilization, and we're calling that medical care, okay? This is the same child, Jazz, in a conundrum because she's been on, cross, on puberty blockade and hasn't developed enough to even have the material to do the surgery. And yeah, it's all like human experimentation. So the, the surgical transitioning comes in two, at two levels. The secondary surgeries are the simple things, hair, forehead, nose, jaw, breast, those things are euphemistically called top surgery and for the most part are reversible. Uh, with the exception of the, the breast amputations. The, the final and definitive surgeries are the genital surgeries, castration, vaginoplasty, the hysterectomy, and uh, phalloplasty. That's called bottom surgery. And boy, they're making money. They're making some serious money here. Uh, it's a huge source of income in my specialty, and it's a disgrace, right? Top surgery is largely reversible except for the breast. Bottom surgery is irreversible. You're taking fully functioning genital organs and mutilating them in order to produce a counterfeit form. You're giving primacy to form and utterly ignoring function, right? And in, the, in that balance of the moral life of the plastic surgeon where you ask yourself, what's the donor morbidity, right? Is it like an index finger becoming a thumb? No, you're taking totally normal genital apparatus, which is at the heart of what it means to be a human person, made for the other, the image of the human person, and you're utterly mutilating and destroying that unacceptable donor morbidity in anybody who's trying to live a just life as a surgeon, right? And you're all doing it for the sake of producing a counterfeit form, right? It's the willful sterilization, and that's grave matter. At the same time, it degrades the unitive aspect. Not only do you destroy the procreative aspect, but you radically degrade the unitive aspect. Because yes, I can turn a penis into a vagina and preserve the sensory nerves that give erotic sensibility to the brain, but those nerves are mapped for a penis as surely as if I cut my arm off and bang the end of the stump, I can make my brain think my hand is still there, right? The, this, now this person who's been convinced that if they do all these things, they're gonna have meaningful genital contact with a person of the other sex, they're having intercourse and their brain is telling them they still have a penis, right? So it's a failure in every regard, right? Recognize, too, that this whole business is very intimately linked with the banking of ova and sperm and the objectification of children 
because they'll be told when they enter into that clinic that you, you will have a right to a child, you need to bank sperm before we mutilate your genitals so that you can have proxy pregnancies because you are entitled to have a child in the future, right? So the language of human slavery is mixed right into that. In vitro and transgender are inexorably linked. Okay. So then comes the plea for mercy. Okay, it's mutilating. Okay, you've destroyed function. Who cares? I mean, I mutilate people when I cut off a, a festering, gangrenous leg, but I'm mutilating them to save their lives. Isn't that what transgender surgery is? If we do the surgery, aren't we preventing that 41% suicide rate? Isn't it justifiable? Yes, we mutilate, but we're saving lives. Isn't it just like a limb amputation, right? This is how it's sold online, the plea for mercy. The Christian worldview is seen as an impediment to happiness, and we're told that this child took their life because his unthinking, rigid parents wouldn't let him have the surgery, and so he took his own life, right? You gotta do everything. You gotta do everything to keep them from hurting themselves. Let's do it, right? It's working, isn't it? It's working. The problem is that the science behind that statement that it's working is really poor. Tiny little studies, five or six patients, poor follow-up, self-selection, bad, bad science. Until the Swedish study. Sweden has an airtight medical database. If you want to find a 25-year-old a, a male from middle income, blue collar, third in the birth order, one's transgender, the other one is not, you can look in that database and go, oh, what's the likelihood they're alcoholic? What's the likelihood they harmed themselves? What's the likelihood they were incarcerated for violent crime? And, and then you can make some definitive statements. And, and this is the study. In a very transgender-affirming society, Sweden, and what does it show? It shows, and you can, you'll, you'll be able to get this when you, when you get the disc, it shows that basically if you follow these people along beyond about eight years, they have the same suicide rate they had before the surgery. The first four or five years, it'll look like, oh, we did them a good, they don't, they're not suicidal anymore. But when the excitement wears off, when all that support wears off, they still have that interior wound. They still have that interior sorrow and anxiety. And so their suicidality comes right back. So really all you have is a suicidal person whose genitals you've mutilated and whose life you've ruined. Here's what the curve looks like, right? You go out there, out to about eight years, everything looks great. And then the bottom falls out. Uh, I'll get you a copy of this in, in, the, in the lecture notes. When you get the disc, I'll, I'll send the PDF file. This is a study of the studies, and basically what it shows, 500 studies reviewed over a period of about two, 20 years, what it shows is this. The scientific definition of biological sex is for almost all human beings clear, binary, stable, reflecting an underlying biological reality that is not contradicted by exceptions to sex-typical behavior and cannot be altered by surgery or social conditioning. There's a fairly clear statement. Furthermore, just because a child thinks of themselves as the opposite sex doesn't mean that it's right to consign them to that by encouraging them in that false idea and giving them cross-sex hormones, right? Essentially, in transgender, I want you to understand, the diagnosis that leads to the surgery is a diagnosis made by the patient. The doctor cannot make a diagnosis on the basis of a medical test, a structural study, nothing. I have, to act, I have to act upon what the patient is telling me. And in this case, the patient is three years old, right? That's not moral behavior by doctors, right? 
now we have this new phenomenon called rapid onset transgenderism. And this is a new kind of transgenderism that's basically driven by the social media, where people will be messaging each other online and how to, how to get through this whole transgender thing by saying the right things. You know, just talk about how you, you're thinking you're going to harm yourself and it'll get you to the doctor's office quicker kind of stuff. I've taken care of patients who live that. I, I just removed the implants on a, on, on a poor young man who was convinced by his peers that he was the wrong sex. And they actually paid with a GoFundMe to send him to Thailand to have all the mutilating surgeries done. And then he suddenly came to his senses. And what started out as an atheist punk rocker kid is now a kid who asked me, hey, if I go to my appointment with you at 9 in the morning, will I still be able to make the tr traditional Latin mass in time? Yeah, okay. The failures are everywhere and mounting. We're going to see this a public disgrace of medicine and surgery that will make the thalidomide issue look like a, a, a little burp. The numbers of people being affected by this. There's, uh, there's ample uh, reading you can do, but I want to summarize, and I apologize for running late. This is not a new condition. It's a form of obsessive compulsive disorder. It's a psychological spiritual wound that you cannot treat with external surgery. You cannot treat an interior wound with external surgery. Seems obvious, but there's so much obvious that's being overlooked. It's an or ordinary childhood role playing is being sexualized and is being treated with puberty blocking drugs. In many cases, permanently mutilating surgeries are being done and there's a huge engine of public opinion that's directed at us, directed particularly at the Catholic Church. Catholic schools, right? Catholic social outreaches, Catholic apostolates, public witness of the truth. And, and it's, a, it's a very pointy weapon, so be ready. You gotta know, and you gotta witness with patience and love. That's the hard part, right? Yeah. Transgender persons are at high risk for abuse and self-harm. So you have to be aware of, the, of, the, of that risk and treat them with that mercy and love that all humanity needs. Our care must be based on a true human anthropology, and we have to protect them from those blind guides. Do not put them into the hands of the average psychologist. You have to be confident that the person you're sending them to understands who the human person is, right? And you have to be fluent in the language so that you can witness with fraternal love. Thanks.